Welcome to Beatitudes, where your host, Dr. Kwamenique Sukina, will give you tools to experience wisdom in your everyday life. Listen each week as Dr. Kwamenique Sukina shares stories that will help guide your faith, perspective, and attitude in every situation. This is Dr. Sukina of Indigenous Messengers International, and here is our host. Today, we're going to talk about be self-aware, therefore impactful. In 1997, I traveled to Israel on a prayer tour through the land, and I fell in love with the land of Israel and her people. It rocked my world completely in a good way, and it opened a lot of new doors in my life, new doors of thought and new doors of relationship. It also opened my spiritual awareness, and it transformed my life in many ways, especially my worldview and some of my spiritual views. Up until that time, I had no real revelation that Jesus was a Jew. I just have to confess to you that I actually thought of him when I would have a vision of him of a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant or charismatic Republican. And this is not to knock any political party, but I just imagined him that way because that was kind of where I was living my life. That was the people that were around me. And that was my expression. I really had not had a deep understanding that he had lived a Jewish lifestyle in a Jewish family, in a Jewish culture, and had actually practiced a Jewish religion. That was just so foreign to me. And when I traveled to Israel, that really opened that up for me. Um, It was a beautiful, beautiful time. And if you haven't been to Israel, everyone should go at least one time especially if you are a person that loves the scriptures because it opens them up to you in in a revelatory way. It did for me, and it was just amazing to get to go to those very historical places, you know, and go back in time, so to speak, and experience that in my faith. On that trip, I brought back many things. I I bought scarves to bring back for people. I brought anointing oils. I brought shofars. I wanted to come back and, and share my experience with the people that I loved. And I, and I, I went around and, and had communion with different people. And some of these had been to Israel and some hadn't. And I was able to impart that, bring that back. And that was so meaningful to me. And I brought back eight shofars. And I gave a shofar each to my children, kept one for myself. That was three. And five of them I distributed to other people that were very meaningful to me, family members, friends. And I just wanted these people to have a touch of Israel. I just, they had helped support me to go. They had sewed into my trip. I did a journal while I was there that I sent to them, each one, thanking them for that. It's really important when we have these opportunities that we remember the people that make those possible. And I kept one of the shofars and I put it on a shelf in my room and I really hadn't had a, a reason to blow the shofar. I, you know, it was not during the feast times or I just didn't think about it. And I left it there for several months. And about nine months later, a Jewish couple was coming from Israel who were spiritual leaders there and they were traveling over and I was hosting them in several meetings. I, I'm wired to be a connector. And so 
I've often said I'm, if I were in the body of Messiah, I would be connective tissue because I really am wired to be a bridge builder. And so I told them I'll be glad to set up meetings. And we had so many meetings and I took them through the whole city and it was a wonderful time. But right before they came, about a week before they came, I thought, you know, I'm probably going to need my shofar. So I got the shofar down off the shelf and I took it outside and I thought, I'm just going to blow my shofar to let this represent the time, you know, of this spiritual time and mark this time with this spiritual experience. And I blew the shofar and the sound was beautiful and it was clear and it was very solid. But just a few seconds later after I blew it, I smelled this horrible, horrible odor that completely took my attention away from the sound. All I could think about was the stench that I was smelling. I couldn't even remember how beautiful the sound sounded, to be quite honest with you. And that's when I realized, it took me a few minutes, but I went, you know what? I, I think there's still decaying flesh in here from the animal that, they, that whoever prepared this shofar did not get all the flesh out of this. And, and I'm like, I'm not going to be able to use this shofar unless I get this smell out of here because no one's going to be able to pay any attention to the sound. They're all going to be going, you know, wanting to, wanting to throw up. So I, I can't use it until the smell is gone. So, you know, I, we, that was the beginning of the Internet, and so I was able to look online, and, and I called some friends, and I said, what do you do, you know, for a shofar? Some of them said, I've never had that experience happen. But I was told that and learned <clears throat> that the best way to deal with that would be to soak it in borax. That was one of the things overnight. One was to soak it in bleach water. Uh, one was to scrub it out, you know. Uh, one was to put fra anointing fragrant oil in it. I tried all that. Nothing worked. So I tried the borax for like five days. I left it in there. I thought, surely now, you know, <laughs> it's going to get this smell out. But I took it out, dried it, blew it, the stench. It was, it, would, it just filled the air. And I was like, I'm, I'm a person that's, I like to redeem things. I don't give up on things very easy. So I, I wasn't going to just toss the shofar because an animal died for me to have it. And I had, I placed value in that. That's probably my native roots. And to honor that. So I was like, I have got to figure out how to clean out this smell out of the shofar. So I was so perplexed, I decided to pray. And when I prayed and asked the creator what to do, the answer came swiftly. And this is what came to me. It must be burned with fire until all the flesh is burned out of it. I'm like, okay. So I stuffed paper towels in it and lit it on fire and I watched the inside of the shofar burn. And I did it several times. And when it was finally done and I, I just knew that it, that it was done, the lining of the shofar was completely black on the inside. It was charred. And once it cooled, I blew the shofar, and hallelujah, <laughs> no smell, no stench. Then I wiped it out, and I filled it with the fragrant anointing oil, and this time it took. And when I blew the shofar, there was not only a clear sound, there was a beautiful smell. And, 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 and when this happened, the Creator spoke to my heart, which He often does to me. I have this relationship. Thank I always say, thank God for God, 
because I wouldn't make it if I didn't have this connection. But this is what he spoke to my heart. He said, this is the way it is with some of my messengers in the religious organizations, and it can even be you. They have great gifts of teaching and prophetic words, but they're like the shofar, and flesh remains in their lives that pollute the gifts I have given to them. They release the word, and it's a clear sound, but right about the time the people are about to ingest the word, they smell the stench of the rotted flesh, and they turn away from the word due to the smell. All the flesh must be removed in order to be a noble vessel in the hands of the Almighty. Bleach and borax will not kill the flesh, and perfume will not cover the stench. Whatever flesh remains will have to be burned out with fire. Wow. The word fire is intense and uncomfortable when we hear that word. It is for me. And it's not something I lean into. <clears throat> in, a way, in the way that the Creator uses fire, in this instance, though, it's used to burn off the elements that are not like Him. It's not a fire that's set to destroy us, but to purify us so that we are usable in this world in honorable ways that honor Yahweh. It rids us of our character defects and our desires that are driven by ego so that we're not ego-driven. We're not tower builders. We are altar builders. I've been burned more than once with this holy refining fire. I'm going through another time right now. And I probably will continue to be because if we turn our lives over, you know, we're human and these things get come into our frames of our lives and God is always taking us, we hear the word, from glory to glory. And he's always doing these purifying things in our lives to help us become, to grow and become better and to become more useful and become more honorable, more integritous. And he will use fire at times for that. And when, when he's using fire, during that time, we are just like, oh gosh, are you going to burn me to a crisp? Am I going to lay here till I'm just an ash? But it doesn't destroy us. We go through the fire, but it doesn't overtake us. But looking back on the fire experience, I can always see the redemptive nature of it and how it made me to be the woman I am today. And I like that woman. I do not, however, like the process of fire, and sometimes it has suffering in it. I remember one time when I was really ill. I had thyroid cancer, and I, I wanted to be healed of it. I already had enough on board with my autoimmune illness, and I was acquainted with suffering. It has its own trauma with it. And I went to the Lord, and I basically said, I, I would like for you to heal me of cancer. I would like for you to increase my life. And I said, you're not hard of hearing, and you don't have Alzheimer's, so I'm only going to ask you one time. My children are not married, and they don't have fathers and they haven't had children, and I don't want them to be orphaned in these experiences. And I would like to be there. Please, please allow me to be there, and please heal my cancer. Now, many people have prayed for healing and not gotten that, and I didn't have some, I don't go to, I believe in faith. But when I go to the Lord, I, I really know that he knows best for me. And I tell him what I would wish, but I don't, I don't have an entitlement based on how he fulfills my prayer. 
I'm not entitled in my own mind. I've gone through a lot to get to that place. I placed it in his hands, and that's what I did that day. And, and this is what he said back to me. You know, Kwamenique, if I increase your life, it's going to increase your suffering. Because in life, there is suffering. You can't have life without some suffering. And I said, oh. And he said, I want to ask you a question. Are, are you going to complain to me if I increase your life and then you encounter suffering? And I said, probably. <laughs> but, but I still love living and I want to be here. And he said, okay. And he kind of showed me about life being about having the joy in one hand and the suffering in the other and the tension between the two. Right now, I'm going through a very difficult time. It's very difficult for me to do these podcasts, to even come in here, but I know that I'm supposed to come into this room and do this podcast because I'm committed, you know, and I know there's, there's resistance that comes my way to keep me from being able to leave this ethical will to my children and grandchildren and put this out on the airway in hopes of encouraging people who are in the midst of suffering. When I had the cancer surgery, when I woke up, six pathologists had seen, I had three biopsies and six pathologists had seen papillary cancer and it was gone. So I did get a creative miracle. I did not get a creative miracle for the mastocytosis, dysautonomia, all the other things that I still suffer with. But I am aware. I don't like the suffering. I don't like the fire. But leaning into it is the only thing that can give me any peace because I lean into the arms. I lean into the arms of the Messiah in the midst of the fire. He gave me a story one time when I was really suffering deeply. Uh, it was like a dream, and, and it, but it was a story that I wrote, and it was about this little girl and she was left in the woods. Her parents had moved on without her because she was so sick and they couldn't care for her. And she was laying there and, and, the, and the rabbits and, and the deer, that they would bring her food. And the, lead, the trees would lean over and drop water when it would rain into her mouth. And it was the nature, it was, it was, the, it was creation that God had created and how he put his heart in them and how creation hears from him and experiences him. The birds know when to fly south. Sometimes they're more connected than we even can be. And in this, in this story that I wrote, this little girl was being sustained by the animals and the trees. And then all of a sudden there was a fire in the forest and the animals were leaving and, and the trees were going to be burned. And so her only way of survival <clears throat> was being taken from her. And this is what happens when we go through traumatic things. It feels that way. Like the very things we've hang on to, they don't work anymore. And we feel like we're going to be consumed and destroyed. And in this story, this little girl saw this figure in white coming to her, coming toward her. And he reached down and he picked her up and she was so, so relieved. And she was like, oh, good, we're going to be able to get out of this fire. And then he said this to her. He said, bury your head into my chest and do not look about because we are going to go through the fire together. And she said, through the fire? 
Why not away from the fire? And he said, because what I have for you is on the other side of the fire. And the story ended with she buried her head into his chest as he stepped into the fire. My life has been this, stepping into the fire. And and quite honestly, I never get comfortable with it. My flesh doesn't like it. I have another story of when I was in the seventh grade and I was bitten by a brown recluse spider. And this was back before people knew about brown recluse spiders. It was back in, I think it was 64. And I've heard that they came over from the Vietnam War. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I was told, that they liked Tennessee where I lived because it was humid and it was green. And that some of the some of the soldiers had brought them back. Now, that may be just an old wives' tale, but that's what I had heard. But that was in 1964, and I was bitten. And at the time, the, the doctors did not know what to do at all. They, they didn't even know what it was at first. It, it, it was a crater that opened in my leg like an open wound and sore. And so they, I started into it. It was a nine-month process before it finally got better, and it was very, very traumatic. I, um, it kept opening up. It, it was eating the skin, the flesh. Uh, you could see part of the bone. I went through a time where I had streaks up my leg. Uh, the, uh, it was causing a staph infection. I remember at the time I wanted my ears pierced and I couldn't do it because it would pop out of my ears. And it caused a blood clot in my leg. And th- they had told my mom they might have to amputate my leg. I wasn't able to be in, in uh, do the exercise classes PE because it was on the inside of my leg. And I was so sick for nine months. I was nauseated because of the toxin. They had no idea, none whatsoever, what really was going on. They gave me a different antibiotic every two weeks, and I would try that, and nothing worked. And it was very, um, that's probably probably what helped to fry my gut, (laughs) caused me to have gut issues because of the, you know, taking antibiotics that long. But which I've worked on that since to repair that. But one of the things that they had to do was they had to cauterize my leg because flesh would grow back over that and there would be a huge toxic crater underneath. And so they would put this fiery acid uh, down inside of the hole and burn out the flesh that was growing back that was not appropriate because they needed to burn away the dead toxic flesh so the leg could heal properly, remove all the harmful cells so the good cells could grow back. Now, this was not left, this was not pleasant, but left unattended, it would have caused me to lose my leg and ultimately my life. So there are times, you know, fire and burning is used in order to produce something better. The lesson of the shofar and the lesson of the cauterizing of the wound that I had in my leg are lessons I will never forget. You know, concerning the shofar, a week after I burned the shofar with fire, when the Israeli leaders came, they happened to present me with a gift at the end of their time here, and guess what it was? A shofar. And the first thing I did was smell it. And everybody looked at me like, why are you smelling that shofar? But I had learned that it's very important what's on the inside of a vessel because ultimately that will be revealed. And if it's rotten, then what will eventually come out will be rotten. This shofar smelled sweet, so I was very relieved and happy.
You know, many times we're not aware of what resides within us, past our conscious level, into the core of who we are. And in life the way it is, a lot of times we try to block that. Simply put, we're just not always self-aware. What is self-awareness? Well, self-awareness is seeing yourself clearly and understanding how we're interfacing with the world around us. And it's the beginning of being honest with ourselves and honest with God. And it's not an easy process because a lot of times what happens is when we see some of what we really are, it causes us to go into a shame spiral. It's like, oh my gosh, I, I can't. And we will either judge others or judge ourselves instead of just handing that over and saying, it's okay, it's okay. You know, you're not perfect. You're a spiritual being having a human experience. You're not supposed to be perfect. It's okay to see this because God can work with it if we'll admit to it. It's the beginning of being honest with ourselves and honest with God. You know, as human beings, we have an innate ability to deceive, to deceive ourselves about ourselves. We all have that on board. And when we begin to be honest with ourselves or become self-aware, we can see ourselves as a separate being. We're able to assess ourselves and allow ourselves to be realistic about that self-assessment. That's a big word, realistic. You know, it, sometimes we just don't want to see it, don't want to see it, don't want to see it. If we've been in shame-based families where we've been shamed and then that makes it harder to see it. We just want to cover it up. We just don't want to know. We want to rem remain in la-la or enlightened misery. <laughs> also, when we're honest with ourselves, then we can make the corrections in our lives and learn and grow. But it is scary. Being self-aware demands that we take a searching inventory of ourselves. Our strengths and our weaknesses what we want in life and what we need in life, what we like and what we dislike. And, you know, this can differ from the desires of other people, but it's important to know these things to allow ourselves to be guided in our decisions by our own values, and it will bring clarity in our lives. There are times that we just won't allow ourselves to be self-aware because if we really get to know ourselves we might want to make changes in our lives that will affect us and other people that we know and love. We can be fearful to rock the boat. In these times, we have to have the courage to admit to God and ourselves the truth. And once we admit the truth to ourselves, then changes can be made that are life-giving to ourselves and to others and even to our relationships. Self-awareness also allows us to see things we've hidden from ourselves concerning what we really want out of our life to be truly fulfilled in this life. This can also be scary at first, but getting to know ourselves and how we're affected by life and the life around us, it's the first step toward an intentional and fulfilling life. When we're not self-aware, things happen to us and to us and we don't register the impact they have on our lives. But our bodies do feel the impact, and they'll act out if we refuse to be aware. We can be in an unacceptable situation and just be on autopilot. And here's an example I want to share with you about that. A couple of decades back, I had a pastor's wife who came to see me, and she began to share with me an incident with her husband, who was the pastor at the time, that was clearly emotionally and verbally abusive to her, and spiritually. 
and to her children. Uh, she continued sharing more than one incident with me, and it clearly showed me that this was a pattern of abuse. Her way of coping with that abuse was to minimize it and rationalize it. This is not uncommon in religious organizations that are led by authoritative leaders, especially if the leader of the church is filled with charisma and is very gifted. There's little support for the wives of abusive and neglectful pastors. As she shared her stories with me, I tried to gently help her to see the impact that was having in her life and how she and her children were being affected by the abuse. At each turn, she would minimize the abuse and make an excuse for her husband. Most of this was wrapped in scripture, scriptures that would in her mind validate her abuse, most likely quoted to her by her abuser, her pastor husband. After she left, I felt as if my head were spinning. All her scriptures sounded so righteous and so good, and she presented herself so together and as if she were not affected at all by the abuse. It felt like her abuse was affecting me more than it was affecting her, and I began to doubt my perceptions and my discernment. Thank goodness in my prayer for clarity, the Creator spoke to my heart. I had asked him for clarity, and he reminded me of my broken toilet. <laughs> I was like, that had broken recently. I remember saying to the creator of the universe, what does my broken toilet have to do with any of this? He proceeded with this lesson. God, do you remember what you did with your broken toilet this morning? Me. Yes, God, I do. It was running and the handle would not work, so I turned the water off at the base to get it to stop running. God, did it fix it? Me, no, God. And neither is minimization fixing her problem. She is turning her emotions off at the base like you did the toilet to keep from hearing the water running. But it did not fix the toilet and neither is it fixing her problem. Lesson noted. That is what we also do at times in contrast to self-awareness. We turn off our inner compass that allows us to be aware. We just don't want to hear the running of the toilet. We don't, we, that, you know, God is there speaking or our circumstances are speaking. They're speaking to us. It's kind of like a drone there. And we don't want to bring it to our awareness because if we do, then we may have to do something about it. So we just turn it off at the base. But when you turn it off at the base, it doesn't fix anything. In fact, it can cause greater problems later. Sometimes we've turned the toilet off at the base in our emotions years ago, in our childhoods, in our self-awareness, when we underwent years of neglect and abuse of abandonment, and it never changed. So we just turned it off. No one's going to come. No one's going to support. It's never going to get any better. I have to turn it off. And God is here today to say, no, you can turn that back on and we can work with that. That toilet can be fixed. That place in your life can be made whole. Sometimes we turn off our awareness when we're scared to admit to ourselves the shape of our marriages, the shape of our health, our family relationships, our job satisfaction, things that we don't like about our places of worship, 
that we're struggling with. Or we turn it off when we want to simply fit into the crowd around us and make simply go along so we don't make waves because we don't want to lose relationships or we don't want to, we don't want to know what we know in our gut, in our discernment. Regardless of how and why, it robs us of confidence. It robs us of the truth of our reality. And it robs us of having stronger relationships, especially the ones we have with ourselves. One of the first steps toward building a self-aware life is to pay attention. We live in a world filled with distractions, so this is not always easy. Just taking a break from our phones and our computers and our televisions, it will increase our awareness of the world around us. And then we can actually direct some of that awareness inwardly by asking ourselves questions. And these are just a few of the questions. There are many questions. Like if you were to sit down to dinner with a friend or a, a person, let's, let's just change that, a person you don't know that you want, want to get to know, you would ask them questions. And they would ask you questions to know who you are. We can do that with ourselves. We can take ourselves out to a meal and sit down with a pen and piece of paper and ask questions and see what, see what comes up. We might be surprised. We can ask ourselves, how are we feeling? And then why do we think we're feeling that way? We can ask ourselves, what do our bodies need? And sing to those needs. We can ask ourselves, what would we like to do? What would make our day better and fulfill some of those needs? We can sit with ourselves and allow ourselves to grieve and be with ourselves in that. We can have joy. We can laugh with ourselves. We can tell ourselves a joke. My husband tells himself jokes all the time and laughs at them. When I first began to work on self-awareness, I coined the phrase for myself that I was going to learn to treat myself like I was somebody else. <laughs> And then I would value myself and take care of myself because I was so good at valuing and taking care of others. The scriptures say love others as you love yourself. So many of us don't love ourselves, and so we really can't love others well. Or we jump ahead of that. We have to have a self on board to be able to give something out to others. Setting boundaries is an additional step that helps move us towards self-awareness. We need to know where others stop and where we come into place. We need to see ourselves as separate and worthy. Boundaries help us to place limits in our lives that protect our time, our space, our bodies, our health, our finances, our relationships. And this gives us the ability to stop, pull away, and reflect. Stop pull away, and reflect. And finally, accepting that we all have blind spots is a very important step towards self-awareness. Blind spots are those areas that others can see and we have difficulty seeing. We don't sometimes even know they're there. Accepting that we are human and are imperfect, that's the first step toward identifying the blind spots. And then being able to work on what's been revealed to us brings growth in our lives. Being self-aware makes our lives more impactful. This is cause we're able to know our values and goals, and that helps us to be better decision makers. Because we're aware of our impact style, 
we're able to communicate with more clarity and intention and respect other people because we know our impact style. Because we're aware that as humans we have blind spots, then it frees us from our assumptions and biases. Because we understand and respect boundaries, we can see things from multiple perspectives. Because self-awareness strengthens emotional intelligence, it allows us to self-regulate our emotions. Being self-aware is a necessity for a successful and rewarding life. We're given one life to live, and we make that journey with our Creator and ourselves. We want to make an impact with the time that we've been given. It also would be really, really tragic to make it through this life and miss knowing a very special, one-of-a-kind person, that person being ourselves. Thank you for joining me today. Um, you can go onto our website at indigenousmessengers.com and you can see some of our offerings there, things we have in our store. Read our bios if you want to know a little more about uh, our ministry and us as individuals, especially myself, since I'm doing the podcast with you. And I appreciate your time today, that you took time for yourself to stop from your busyness, but that you chose to be on here with me today in our journey. It means a lot to me. It really does. Because I know that time is valuable. I know how valuable it is. And so when you give time to me, I, I honor that. And I would like to also remember my children and my grandchildren for whom I'm doing this podcast primarily so that they have something of me eternally when I cross the veil. Um, I want to leave this and dedicate it to them. This is my ethical will for my children and my grandchildren. And one day I'll probably read their names on here, maybe tell you a little bit special about each one of them. God bless. Thank you for listening to Beatitudes with Dr. Kwamenik Sukina. Be sure to follow the show for more tools on how to experience wisdom in your everyday life for you to walk in victory with the right attitude.